Wait, there's a Led Zeppelin 1? At least that's what a 13-year-old me was saying back in 93 after nearly wearing out my Led Zeppelin 4 album. But Led Zeppelin 1, the band's debut album from January of 1969, is a powerhouse in its own right. It was met with mixed reviews, as a Rolling Stone reviewer called Robert Plant a foppish Rod Stewart. Now don't worry, I had to Google what foppish meant too. He's basically calling Plant a boring version of Rod Stewart who's more concerned with his fashion than the music. Which is funny, because as I read this, I'm looking at a picture of Rod Stewart that I initially mistook for Liza Minnelli. But, another reviewer called Led Zeppelin 1's release a turning point in rock music. So, will nostalgia interfere with our review, or will we be able to take off our rose-colored earbuds and pick this album apart? If all of this has left you dazed and confused, have no fear, because your time is going to come. Up next, on 1001 Album Complaints. Alright, hello and welcome everybody. This is the inaugural episode of 1001 Album Complaints, uh, the podcast where we go through the recommendations on the 1001 albums you have to listen to before you die and give our jackass opinions on the great work of other artists that we're only going to tear down. Um, uh, Not only tear down, we're going to also lift up a bit, but uh, I think you'll get from the context of all of our uh, personalities that uh, we are critics at heart. Um, and, uh, you know, nobody ac- appreciates good art more than a critic, but nobody is harsher than a critic on bad art. So with that being said, let's get to the players. Let's get to the critics that we have here. Uh, I am Tom Monahan. Uh, we have with us Rob Cassis, Adam Laskowski, and Phil Matarese, all lifelong musicians, all people who have probably spent more time than uh, you would believe discussing albums in various darkened bar settings, and uh, certainly people stacked with opinions to give on uh, some of these classic works. So what are we going to be talking about today, guys? We're going to be talking about Led Zeppelin 1. Oh, uh, yes. It seems like a fantastic album to kick off our uh, inaugural episode with. Definitely a classic album. I don't think anybody could argue that this is not a, uh, a sort of watershed moment in rock history. Um, that being said, I think that there might be some issues with it. Um, just uh, off the top of your head, guys, what were your initial impressions? Led Zeppelin one, as I'm sure people who've listened to Led Zeppelin many times in your life, but maybe not sat down and listened to a Led Zeppelin album. What was the initial initial read from you guys? You know, I mean, there's something that jumped out to me, right? Two things jumped out to me right away uh, as, as, uh, as I sat down. You know, I listened to it uh, with headphones on, and I'm not sure I ever listened to Led Zeppelin 1 with headphones on before, definitely not intently. So it immediately jumped out like sort of the Jimmy Page, like wall of sound, kind of triple guitar attack, right? Um, and the way a lot of that's like hard pan, and just, yeah, it's really just a hip sound even like hip uh, for today. Um, The other thing that jumped out was the second verse of Babe, I'm going to leave you. Uh, (laughs) It was, uh, you know, it was... uh, A different time. Basically, (laughs) nothing. Uh, So so those were the things that jumped out to me upon, you know, that first listen. What about you guys? Yeah, I hadn't hadn't listened to it straight through since, I don't know... uh, 15, 20 years. And so there's a couple tracks on there that the first note, it's kind of the, the uh, Leonard Skinner, Sweet Home Alabama syndrome where you hit next, 
right? So I had a couple, there's two tunes on this album specifically that for the last 20 years I've hit next with the first note. We'll get into that later. Um, but it was nice to kind of force myself to actually listen to it in its entirety. Um, sonically, uh, Phil, you're right with headphones. It's kind of a different experience. Um, and just at, at the time, imagining what that must have been like coming out, just the, the mix, the instrumentation, uh, very, very cool for the time. So, what, what jumped out to me was how acoustic and folky a lot of the songs were. And in my mind, and I think in the, in the memory of a lot of people, Led Zeppelin is this heavy metal progenitor, hard rock, riff rock. And of course, there's a, a lot of that and a lot of guitar swells and things like that but the sheer amount of acoustic instrumentation and the kind of yeah the, the sort of folky almost ballady nature of it uh, even in the song choice which i'm sure we're going to talk about the history of some of these songs really jumped out at me as something that i i hadn't remembered was such a big piece of their sort of history yeah, I, Rob, I would 100% agree. I found myself wondering how the fuck this was the debut album of what is lauded as like the first hard rock band. And after listening to it, I was, you know, kind of blown away. There's a cut of this album that you can put together where you take two or three songs off of it and it's like a fucking folk album. It's not a rock album <laughs> at all. If you take off Good Times, Bad Times, you take right. out Communication Breakdown, and you take out Dazed and Confused, it is not a rock album anymore. It is more like a soft kind of, honestly, like sort of like a whiny album about how fucking badly women treat you. And like, <laughs> honestly, Robert Plant, like how, who hurt you? That's what I want to know. All of the lyrics on these songs are just all about how somebody fucked over Robert Plant and he's got to leave some woman and she's not treating him right. And it's it's, it's honestly, it's the I was first shocked. Attempt, it, it's British blues, right? It's the attempt at British blues. So you kind of get yeah. that in there. Well, and also, let's just say, uh, not to be uh, modern about it, but uh, how privileged is it that uh, all of your blues are just the super attractive women that I'm having sex with aren't treating me as well as I would like? <laughs> That's your version of the blues. <laughs> Somewhat uh, different than, uh, yeah. The yeah, this down isn't, south uh, you blues, know, right. my, my wife died of consumption blues. Right. <laughs> uh, cool. So, all right. So background on the, the artist, we have Led Zeppelin. Everybody knows Led Zeppelin. Everybody knows that uh, Led Zeppelin was started by Jimmy Page. He was the, the guy who really got the, uh, the fire started under that uh, particular project coming off of his time in the Yardbirds. Um, clearly a very talented guitar player wanted to put together a group which was at the time billed as a super group. And this was uh, actually critically panned by some people as like, oh, it's the time of super groups, yet another super group coming together. Um, and I'll, we'll go into a little bit of the uh, Rolling initial Rolling Stone review on uh, we talk about sort of the reception of the album. But um, yeah, it was it was basically a super group because of Jimmy Page he coming out of the Yardbirds, putting something together. He was joined by Robert Plant, um, John Paul Jones on bass and keyboards, John Bonham on the drums. And, um, you know, I, I think that uh, in, in having a discussion with Rob about uh, Led Zeppelin generally and John Bonham um, outside of this uh, this recording, um, you know, John Bonham is that 
the the first drummer that like a lot of people fall in love with especially when you're younger you sort of hear it and you're like oh my god john bonham is this amazing drummer will never be matched and he was probably a pioneer in a lot of that stuff but uh Certainly, if you listen to the the drum beats that he's doing now, I mean, I can go on YouTube right now and watch a video of an eight-year-old Japanese girl playing a pretty fucking good version of Good Times, Bad Times, right? So um, he might have developed some really great techniques, but uh, I maybe wasn't, I'm maybe not as in love with him as I think other people would be. Um, sorry, I've come to think that he's sort of in the early, yeah, I, I think it's about his con- contribution, right? And I think he's probably in the early pantheon of drummers who made a style that is recognizable to them the kind of slightly behind the beat style that he had and then i also suspect having read the led zeppelin trashy biography hammer of the gods which i strongly recommend to everyone on this (laughs) call he was you know he's a larger than life personality and i think that probably helped push a lot of it across so you think he was better at branding than he was at drums (laughs) i think he was better at being an insane drunk person (laughs) than a lot of things well I mean, if, but if you think about it, though, right, like in, in 1969, like how how much music was drum driven, right? right. Like, uh, you, you listen know, to even the like mix. the dance yeah. music at the time, like what was like the top dance song in 1969? Let's find out. I don't even know if they even had dance music back then. <laughs> you think think back then right like we can go on youtube now we see live clips we see how crazy he was right the the initial introduction for probably 90 percent of the people was just the sound right you put on the led zeppelin album and it's probably one of the first albums that has a very drum forward mix yeah that's what i'm sound saying big yeah, yeah. right it's not tinny it's not chintzy you know it's not just like a in the background right the drums are forward everywhere so i think that in addition to to the style the pocket rob just talked about right that sick triple that triplet kick drum thing and good times bad times right out of the gate right yeah yeah well i i would say the other thing yeah broadly speaking about the record is that it has more space than i was expecting it's more minimalist actually in a way than i was expecting it to be and i think you as we're comparing it to other rock music of the era you know Jimi hendrix experience cream either sort of those are the somewhat the contemporaries I think it's I le- it leaves a lot more space for for as much as these as these guys are all known to shred their instruments or be masturbatory about their playing. There is a fair amount of space in the arrangements. Interestingly, you know, you bring up the concept of space. One of the um, uh, sort of getting into the production of the album. One of the things that Jimmy Page specifically um, brought to the table because it was produced by Jimmy Page. Um, interestingly. Produced by Jimmy Page, all engineered by Glenn Johns, who was actually a uh, like a childhood friend of Jimmy Page. Um, I think that it's it's kind of interesting the Glenn Johns connection. Um, uh, I had not I I'd assumed when I first found out that like oh, engineered by Glenn Johns, they were friends since childhood. Probably just some fucking joker. Glenn Johns actually um, went on to record. He recorded a ton of bands. He recorded the Beatles for the Get Back Sessions. Um, he recorded the Who, the band, the Clash, the Steve Miller Band, the Rolling Stones, a ton of ton of bands. Um, and actually inspired the cover of Led Zeppelin II, 
which the cover of Led Zeppelin too is that sort of weird picture. It looks like a bunch of like airmen or something kind of sitting and there's that woman mm-hmm. crouching in front yeah, of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That woman is Glynis Johns, who was an actress. And they put that picture on there as an homage to, to Glyn Johns. And if you listen to the Get Back sessions, which uh, Glyn Johns was the engineer on, the Beatles, every time they, they, they will refer to Glynis a couple of times, they're always, re- that's him. They're referring to this guy, Glyn Johns, as, as the, you know, when they say Glynis, it's kind of their like inside joke. They were referring to him as Glynis. So apparently a very prolific engineer. I had no idea. Um, pretty fucking lucky that Jimmy Page just happened to know a world-class engineer <laughs> from the time that he was a teenager and was able to put it together for this initial recording. Um, the other thing that's interesting and I think informs the sound of the album a lot is that they did not have a record contract when they recorded this album. So that gave them complete creative control. They could write the songs how they wanted them, make them the length that they wanted them. They didn't have the A&R guy saying, I don't hear a single to quote, to quote the late great Tom Petty. Uh, they right. could sort of go with their heart on it. Sometimes the better effect than others. Um, but, and also Jimmy Page paid out of pocket for the recording session of that used money that he made torn with the Yardbirds paid out of pocket. Um, they recorded it. And it's interesting. He says he knows it took exactly 36 hours to record the album because he got the bill for it. That's and so much- <laughs> he, he paid the, the bill for 36 hours, which um, at the time cost them uh, 1,782 pounds, but that's the equivalent of about like 30,000 pounds today. So he went 30 grand out of pocket to record this band, um, which I, I think shows a lot of uh, a lot of faith in the project, or maybe he just had a shitload of money. I don't know. Um, I mean, Paige had definitely been like a studio rat since he was fifteen yeah. or sixteen years old, right? So, I mean, I'm not saying thirty large was just you know laying around, but, but that's also I mean, how you know, could, maybe it was. But how you uh, could get into the studio and get out with an album in thirty six hours? Absolutely, like yeah, that's, he, he they were clocking. So yeah, it was. I'm sorry, it was recorded at the Olympic Studios in London in September, October 1968. Um, and uh, just a, I, was, I find this to be like uh, one of the, the things about Jimmy Page that fucking annoys me, to be honest, is that he recorded this on a Fender Telecaster. So all of the guitar sound that you hear is on a Telecaster, actually gifted to him by Jeff Beck um, yeah. because he had recommended Jeff Beck for the Yardbirds, and so as like sort of a gift he gave them this like technicolor telecaster but it, every led zeppelin album was recorded on like a telecaster stratocaster he was a he was a fender guy but every time he played live he had to have the big les paul because that looked cooler and i i, I don't know it, it, clearly they were very good at, at presentation and they did a great job of making themselves look cool as fuck on stage but it, it kind of annoys me that like if you're playing a technicolor fucking fender te- fender telecaster for the album and then you go out and you have to play your like super low slung gibson for the live shows it's like you're not focusing on the right things man but then what the fuck do i know <laughs> Uh, there's a fun story where, uh, in addition to Jeff Beck giving him the the telly, right, the, like the dragon telly, right, uh, Joe Walsh gave him the '59 Les Paul that you see in all the uh, other all those like. So he was literally just given. He just gifted, to, like, gifted all of these remarkable. Wow. And the rich get richer. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Tell me about your blues again. <laughs> yeah. Right. Seriously. I, um, I think what you mentioned is really good context about Paige, and this is what researching the album made me both kind of appreciate it more, but also put it in better context, that this was kind of a culmination 
for him of a lot of ideas and his session work over the years. And he played with a lot of these guys and been through the ringer of a lot of bands, been a road dog. And he just really had, he wanted like complete creative control. That was sort of the premise. So he recruited everybody, paid for everything. Yep. And he had a really clear idea of what he wanted to do. So it was like, it was actually, a, you know, overnight success, long time in the making kind of situation. Sure. He had a really clear idea of what he wanted to do, which included stealing some songs for this album. And we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, okay. Can I mention one trivia tidbit that I don't, I don't know if this is well known, but I read this in uh, aforementioned Hammer of the Gods that you know, he's on like so many, Paige plays guitar on so many of those old studio recordings, uh, uncredited. But one of them, he plays the original guitar and you really got me, that Kinks song. Yeah, really? really? Yeah. Did not know that. And apparently this is one of those situations where back in the day, they'd bring a guy like Paige in and they'd be like, yo, Ray Davies or whoever, get out of the way. They're like, we're ready to play the song. We're the band. No, fuck you. Get out of here. <laughs> Paige is playing it. <laughs> like, it's only two chords. Shut up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Page here. <laughs> I, I also like though Jimmy Page, you know, six foot something, good looking dude. They're like, oh no, no, no. We want, you know, Ray Davies to be the face of the band and we want him just to be the talent. Like he's a he's a good looking dude. Get him out there. Get him out in front. Yeah, I'm sure was thinking, like, why am I not a member of this band? Why am I not out on stage? I'm sure we could have a whole separate podcast talking about the attractiveness of our musical heroes, but I personally think Paige <laughs> is ugly as fuck. Really? Yeah, yeah you know. Maybe I'm just focused on that uh, you know, giant phallic guitar that he has out in front. <laughs> He's cool, but I'm just I mean listen, Ray Davies is not lovely to look at either. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Um okay, so uh the album was released. January 12th, 1969. Um, that was uh, released on Atlantic Records. Um, and uh, yeah, that, I would say probably a pretty good call on the part of Atlantic Records to pick that album up and release it. Um, so just a fun little aside here. Let's talk about the context of the musical universe that they were releasing this album into. Um, a lot of the reason why I think an album will make it into an album you have to hear before you die is because it's something that was new. It's something that changed music, you know, forever after that point. Um, number one single in the United States of America on January 12th, 1969, Marvin Gaye's I Heard It Through the Grapevine. Fantastic song. Solid tune, yeah. But I would, I would say that Led Zeppelin 1 coming out may have sort of signaled the end of that like Motown golden era where Motown was like really the dominant force in, um, in American music because rock and roll took over pretty heavily after that. And, um, you know, Motown, I love Motown. I think it's fantastic. I love Marvin Gaye. Um, you know, uh, but I do think that that that's a, a very compelling argument for this album being a, an album you have to hear before you die because it came into that landscape and really changed the game and allowed a lot of other artists to come after that and really, um, you know, ride the coattails of that success. And I have to introduce to everybody here the number one song in the UK on January 12th, 1969. Um, Very excited. All right. We're going to play a second of this. Uh, and you guys can just hear again. This is right in their backyard. This is the the sound that they were entering into. That was the dominant sound in the market. It is the scaffolds, Lily the Pink. We'll 
she invented medicinal compounds most efficacious in every case. Mr. Frears had sticky out ears and it made him awful shy. And so they gave him medicinal compounds. Okay, so that's just the context on like. Can you imagine the fucking balls that you have to have to be like, I'm going to take 30 grand of my money and I'm going to sink it into this project. Everybody wants to hear this fucking like tuba music. What the hell do we just listen to? Yeah. polka. People lined up at record stores to actually purchase this, right? You got to picture that context. It wasn't a download. It wasn't, you know, like they physically went and purchased that thing yeah they'll be their... down probably like you know a couple of tuppence or something like that to get it it sounds like it was written by the fucking oompa loompas like i don't understand why that was popular it's funny to think of just like three or four people like sitting around in somebody's bedroom like listening to that being like oh, it's pretty good yeah. it's like this song a lot. it was like british lawrence welk you know what I mean? But like where they'd have those, you know, the Irish singers on or whatever. But I feel like that was in the U.S. that had that era had passed. Right. Like that was in the yeah. 50s. Right. And then yeah. to your point about, you know, uh, well, the grapevine we, was anyway. The U.S. had black people who were making much better music at right. the time than like the most fucking buck right. British song I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> but I wouldn't I didn't find any evidence of this. It wouldn't surprise me if Paige would say he liked that song like it sounded like he had very eclectic tastes he was definitely into uk folk music and irish folk music and ballads and some of that kind of folky guitar playing that guy bert janch is a artist i listened to a bit in sort of researching this so he was known for his eclectic kind of approach to music wouldn't wouldn't blow my mind if he had that on the player I bet if we read the credits, uh, he's actually on it. I, I think maybe yeah, yeah. He, he, he was in the studio band really shredding yeah, he, that up. He's uh, playing the backup sousaphone on it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's, let's center our minds. Let's get ourselves in the universe. January 12th, 1969. You happen to pop into a record store. The last album that you bought was clearly The Scaffolds, you know, <laughs> Lily the Pink. You, you have to, you've got that on repeat. You've worn it out to this point, And you're like, all right. <laughs> I need to maybe find a new album. I'm going to take a runner on this Led Zeppelin project. It's got a cool cover. There's a Hindenburg on fire. It looks pretty fucking Great badass. Name, right, yeah. Great name. You know, you take it home. Yep. Was this the Pop first, it on. Was this the first of the great rock misspellings? Just kick that off. That I don't know. That is a good question. What, well, so what are the other great rock misspe- misspellings that you got going on, Rob? The Beatles. Oh, okay. Yeah, fuck you. I, I could be a pun. <laughs> you could consider that a pun. But... So that's what, we apparently... that's what we call a slam dunk in the podcasting world. Yeah, but uh, I would also say that uh, that very clearly that it is not the first great rock misspelling. Case closed. Your case closed. Not here, guys. Rob, thanks for the aside. Appreciate the side journey. <laughs> All right, so. You just listened to, to Lily the Pink. You're like, all right, you know, let, let's try this new album I got. You pop in, put it on your your uh, your gramophone, pop the needle into the groove, and the first thing you hear is the opening to Good Times, Bad Times.
honestly, I have this extraordinarily high on my list of best first song, first album of all time. They make a fucking statement with the intro of this song. It's amazing. The thing that kind of blew me away looking back at it, it's two minutes and 46 seconds long. That is a tight song. They come in hard, they come in fast, they get out and they leave you wanting more. It is perfect, perfect opening song. That is really short for a song of this level of epic, definitely. Yeah, and look, looking at the other, you know, the, the rest of the tracks on the album, you're right. I mean, it, it, it would have been a huge mistake to, to put anything except this at, at top billing there. So, yeah. 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 No idea it was so short. Like, even, yeah, like looking at the other tracks now. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. yeah. It does rip. It rips right um, in. No one. Yeah. And it makes that statement of like, it comes in really heavy on guitar. So you're like, okay, mm-hmm. clearly guitar driven band. And then another, Dana, and you got the, the drums coming in. You're like, oh, okay, guitar and drum driven band. Um, and then that kick in, that kick in uh, drum fill. Honestly, also, Robert Plant fucking sucks at writing lyrics. All right. I'm just going to go out and say that. Robert Plant is not a good lyricist. None of the lyrics on this album are particularly good. But that opening line, in the days of my youth, I was shown what it means to be a man. Now I've reached that age, I try to do all those things the best I can. That is a great opening couplet right there. The rest of the album goes dramatically downhill from there. But <laughs> they, make a, they make a pretty clear statement right at the front. Out of the gate, you're right. Very, very strong showing. So I, yes. I, I can only imagine what the, uh, the British reactions were. It's the devil's music, maybe. I'm not sure. But yeah, well, it's got it. <laughs> can, we, can we also say, you know, you alluded to it, Tom, but not only is this the first thing they recorded, but the band itself was very, very new. Like he recruited the band. They played some shows, I think, in Scandinavia mm-hmm. as, the new, as the Yardbirds or something. And then very shortly after they played together for the first time, they were recording this in the studio. So they had, a, I mean, this is like new band energy. And, yeah. um, and really, this is just to please and amuse Phil. But I, I found a quote from Jimmy Page about their initial connection as a band. I swear to Christ, Phil, this is what is in the quote. Jimmy Page says about the first time they get together and play, which is like a couple weeks before they record this album. It was unforgettable. It was there immediately, a thunderbolt, a lightning flash, boosh. <laughs> um, what, what year was that statement given? Boosh. I can, I can, cite, I can cite my sources. It was in a Rolling Stone article. <laughs> wow. wow. Is it spelled B-O-O-S-H? Boosh. Yes, sir, it is. <laughs> That's pretty fucking amazing. That is pretty funny. I'm going to have to get a (laughs) t-shirt. So, all right. Let's speak of the Rolling Stones because we've talked about like this opening fucking epic, all right? Rolling Stone review of Led Zeppelin 1. How was it received? I'm going to read to you the first two paragraphs of the Rolling Stone review of Led Zeppelin 1. Let me ask, do you guys think this is glowing? Do you think that this is derogatory? I'm sure they rip it. I'm sure they say it. Gather around the fire, children. Here we go. All right. All right. So this is this is the the first two paragraphs. The popular formula in England in this, the aftermath era of such successful British bluesmen as Cream and John Mayall, seems to be add 
to an excellent guitarist who, since leaving the yard board, birds and or mayall, has become a minor musical deity, a competent rhythm section, and a pretty soul belter who can do a good spade imitation. Which, in case y'all are not familiar, he's referring to sound like a black person. And apparently, you could just write that shit back in the Rolling Stone back in, uh, in, in England, 1969, yeah. and that was okay. And, the latest of the British blues group so conceived offers little that its twin, the Jeff Beck group, didn't say as well or better three months ago. And the excesses of the Beck's group of the Beck group's truth album, most notably its self-indulgence and restrictedness, are fully in evidence on Led Zeppelin's debut album. Jimmy Page, around whom Led Zeppelin revolves, is admittedly an extraordinarily proficient blues guitarist and explorer of his instrument's electronic capabilities. Unfortunately, he is also a very limited producer and a writer of weak, unimaginative songs. And the Zeppelin album suffers from his having both produced it and written most of it alone or in combination with his accomplices in the group. Not a very glowing review. No. So, but... Okay, can we say this? Or here's here's my take: is I, I would agree that the songs on this album are not Led Zeppelin's strongest, other with maybe a couple exceptions. That plus the fact that we know he they stole a bunch of these songs, some directly from the likes of the Jeff Beck group. But yeah, the rest of that review is ridiculous. The energy and the production is insane. Like that's yes, I I, I, I think particular in issue with the competent rhythm section <laughs> statement all right john bottom is undeniably a fucking fantastic drummer i don't hold him up on a pedestal as like a drumming deity but like he's definitely a demigod like he's a fucking fantastic <laughs> drummer and john paul jones is might be the most talented person in that band he is a fucking <laughs> phenomenal bass player he is like the quintessential fifth man he can fill any fucking position he comes in or i guess it's the sixth man i don't know fucking sports but he can fill an <laughs> Any position he makes the songs better and how are you going to shit on the rhythm section of led zeppelin that just shows this guy does not fucking understand anything now, about I, music i will have to say that that his uh his analysis of comparing beck uh jeff beck to jimmy page is, is apples to oranges i mean i i just again listening to, to jimmy page's guitar work i understand right at the time <laughs> i the proficiency of Jeff Beck is just on another level, right? I mean, yes. that's like comparing me to Jeff Beck. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> so I, I get it. So that I, I will give the um, uh, the reviewer, I'll, I'll, I'll give him that, that, that comparing hey, the Jeff two Beck's is definitely- the bar. Right. Yeah. Well, listen, Jeff Beck was fucking phenomenal. I love Jeff Beck. I think Jeff Beck group have many very good albums, but I don't think there's any argument to be made that they were better at writing good commercially consumable. Oh, I was music. Yeah, com- absolutely right. Yeah. Here's a three minute radio hit versus yeah. Jeff Beck is learning Armenian scales to, I don't know, like, do some weird concept album. You know, it's like, it's going to last four hours. So, well, so I read that one of the things that got Paige disillusioned, so he didn't, Beck didn't quite replace him in the Yardbirds, I don't think. I think they were together in the Yardbirds for a minute. He did recommend Beck to be in the group, maybe as a replacement for Clapton. And there was a period, brief period, I think, where they were both in the band. And Paige was like really excited about what two guitar wizards sort of could do together, potentially. But then they fell apart like on their American tour because Beck like walked off and just quit the tour in the middle. Like, you know, Paige was so annoyed about his sort of lack of professionalism or he just wasn't a very detail oriented person. He didn't really care as much about the production, things like that. And so that got Paige really riled up. 
but then I don't know if you got this on your list. We didn't make mark this. I think is one of the tracks we're going to talk about. But one of the stolen tracks is the "You Shook Me," which is on that Jeff Beck album, "Truth," that is referenced in the review with singer Rod Stewart. They do basically, basically like Jeff Beck had already come out with "You Shook Me" is a I don't know Willie Dixon song or some some blues song, right? That's right. It's basically a total rip of the arrangement. But man, do yourself a favor. Go listen to that Jeff Beck, Rod Stewart version compared to the Led Zeppelin version. It's actually insane. They are a similar arrangement in terms of how they approach the song. But like the the gap is so wide in the amount of sex that is in <laughs> the track. <laughs> well, now I got to go listen. All right. Well, yeah. Like, uh, yeah. you know, other reviews, they referred to Plant as a foppish Rod, as foppish as Rod Stewart, but nowhere yes. near as exciting. Which uh, I, I love the, you know, again, that super British slam calling you a fucking fop. <laughs> Fantastic. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is de- this is the era of like, you know, stuffing the, you know, got the stuffed sock down the pants to make it look like he got like a 12 inch cock on stage type of like super sexy tight pant kind of waifish long haired high pitched singer. Right. It's not the cock he plays with in the studio, but yeah. No. Yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> Everybody has their studio cock and they have the road cock. I get it. You know? <laughs> um, so, yeah, honestly, um, the reviews of the album are that it's, you know, kind of uh, maybe masturbatory, needs a little editing, needs a little bit better production. I think in retrospect, the production stood the test of time in a way that um, I, I don't think was quite appreciated in the initial reviews, that kind of weird reverse echo stuff that they did basically to um, combat the fact that they were doing live vocal takes and the vocals were bleeding onto things. Yep. And so, uh, you know, using that to a, to like good effect, I think was, uh, you know, it's kind of working with the hand you're dealt. I, I give them a lot of credit for making that sound good. That could have been. I also, a, I also just think, I mean, to that end, Tom, I think there's a, there's just sort of like a use of space in the production, right? That is, again, I think sort of uncommon for the time. Um, everything was, you know, sounded really tight or had that sort of Phil Spector wall of sound vibe, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it is just like a really different sound um, and the amount of openness there is and, and, and the way the overdubs are recorded with like a little air to them as well. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the recording technique that, uh, that Jimmy Page championed on this album was, um, basically double miking everything one mic close up on the, uh, speaker and then one mic a good distance away to kind of get a little bit of room sound and then blending those two mics together. Um, you can tell again, it's, it's a very different sound than that sort of Phil Spector wall of sound because they're close mic and the drums too. So that's where you can get that sort of fine detail in the cowbell and the hi-hat in the bass drum and the toms and the snare, like they all kind of pop independently, but then they also blend it together with that room sound to give it a little bit more of that natural vibe. And I think it, honestly, I think the production sounds pretty goddamn good. Even it holds up, especially as you said, Phil in headphones. And maybe this is, uh, I'm sure everything we're listening to now is like remastered versions of it i didn't go out and buy an original vinyl of this or anything like that but listening to it in headphones um there was a lot more fine detail in there than i was expecting from an album of that era it sounds a lot like a live band i I think that's what that production technique was attempting to get at and yeah I, i read that too that page really championed that distance equals depth 
approach, which was very radical or maybe even brand new at the time. And yeah, the result is that it really sounds like the band is in the room. I mean, that even on the songs I don't like, I have to admit, it feels like live band energy when you're listening to it. Yes, which I think is maybe one of the saving grace is for some of the tracks that I particularly fucking hate and think are terrible. Speaking of which, let's go on to track number two and let's yeah, talk so about the fucking contrast. All right. You got track number one, tight, two minutes and 40 seconds of good times, bad times. It comes in, it rips, it says what it needs to say, gets the fuck out of there. And you're like, God damn, I want to listen to that again. We go on to the second track on the album babe i'm gonna leave you i will reiterate the six minute and 42 second Oof, long yeah. babe i'm gonna leave you and it feels like that time is incorrect it it's it feels like it's 15 minutes like <laughs> listen to the song they do that all right so intro to the song everything's good then they kick into this which is the sort of intense let's listen to this right now you get to do that once <laughs> like why would you like kick into the intense version of that twice it's like fucking hit it and quit man you know if you're gonna steal right the uh, lack of a crescendo because you've got two now kind of yeah and and now i t t tell me if uh sonically from when you guys re-listen to that with headphones did you find the bass noticeably lacking like i i get that there's this right uh, acoustic buildup everything it comes in pretty cool right but there's no low end the no the low end never hits with those crescendos and sonically it felt me leaving like uh, where is it so you never get that satisfaction yeah that big yeah no it, it lacks power it lacks punch um something i did not know before uh research this song that is a joan baez song so they did not actually write that joan baez originally wrote that song yep really yeah, this is they like didn't a cover write, like album. most of the fucking wow. songs on this album. Yeah. I'm learning so much as well. Right. <laughs> yeah, and that song, I mean, that Joan Baez song was like on the radio, like, I don't know what year exactly, but it wouldn't have been that far behind. It was in recent memory. I mean, maybe that's just why it was on the record then, right? Maybe that's just something we can't relate to. Yeah, like I know the Beatles did that, right? With, uh, a couple of those old, you know, it was oh, really early songs. records. Yeah. Oh, right. Exactly. Those it's... ones from the you know mid sixties, they, they would do that a lot. But Led Zeppelin was not the first person or not the first band to release a rendition of Joan Baez's babe. I'm going to leave you. Her version came out in like an, on like a 1962 album. Um, it was adapted by the plebs in a 1964 single, The Association in a 1965 single, Mark Winter in a 1965 single, Quicksilver Messenger Service in a 1968 uh, for like a movie soundtrack, and then again by Led Zeppelin in 1969. So it's not even like they pulled some fucking, they did some cool like, oh, this is a, we're doing our really own interpretation of it. Nothing has never been done before. No, it's been done to fucking death. And they put it as the second Wait, did song. The scaffolds, did the scaffolds do that one? 
Uh, I, I didn't see the scaffolds on the list, but you know, they were a very prolific band. I actually have my original pressing of the scaffolds debut in the mail on its way from England. I paid a hefty pound for it. <laughs> it should be here worth, soon. It, worth every pound, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, listen, I, I don't know about you guys, low point of the album for me. And I, the, the, this might be where the sort of lack of record company influence played a part in that. It just seems like a total stumble to come from the high, high of like ripping out of the end of good times, bad times, which is a fade. And so you're like fading out of the end of good times, bad times. You're like, what is going to happen with this phenomenal rock and roll band that I am ready to crown as the new king of hard rock. And they come in with this acoustic guitar and quite possibly the least finished lyrics of any fucking album yeah. of any song I've ever heard. I mean, like, I, I don't feel necessarily the way you just described that sort of the transition. Like, I, 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 I as, as the song kicks off, I, I feel like, oh, cool. Like, I, you know, I, I sort of like where this is going. It feels like a transition to me, right? But Wait, yeah, the song goes someplace. <laughs> well, well, I, no, I disagree. No, I'm, I'm more with Phil on this one, too. Yeah. Yeah, I like I like the way it comes in. I like where it goes. I just think it goes off the rails in the second verse and then keeps going for like five more minutes. <laughs> it, yes, it could use. Listen, no, I agree. It could use an editor, and the lyrics are bad. I'm I'm not disagreeing with that. But that's their whole. That's their whole. That's the whole album basically, and that's them. Like I wrote down when I was listening to this, like, most Zeppelin song on the album? Question mark. Like to me, this. And I, I actually, I kind of, I'm not the biggest Led Zeppelin fan in the world, I should point out, but I meant, I mean that comment kind of neutrally. I think this song actually kind of sums up a lot of what they are, which is lack of an editor, acoustic, uh, electric instrumentation, two long songs, the crooning from plant makes no fucking sense, but kind of makes you feel like there's some sense of epicness, but when you actually tune into it, you're like, what is going on right now? Exactly. It felt right. It felt it felt right in with the rest of the album to me. Good times, bad times is the standout. To as it's clearly produced as a single. I'm not a Zep uh, aficionado, but it occurred to me when I was listening to Good Times, Bad Times, like, hey, that the vocals are produced in a different way. I don't think Plant typically doubles his vocals or adds harmony. There's not usually harmony in their songs. Those are both present on Good Times, Bad Times. Like that one was designed to be a single and it's effective. Well, here's the one thing that I would say. Led Zeppelin have some rambling songs. They have some very long songs. Uh, I'm actually a particular fan of that song, 10 Years Gone, which is a really long song. doesn't have to be as long as it is, but it has a payoff. And that's my biggest problem with Babe and Believe You is just like, I, I will admit, you come into acoustic guitar and, you know, the, the intro of Babe, I'm going to leave you. If there was a payoff in that song, I would have thought it was a much better choice for it. But it seems like it, it just goes, it's a fucking road to nowhere. All right. And uh, I, I can't get on board with it. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, all right. The next song that uh, we have on tap to talk about, we're going to skip over uh, track three. Wait, wait, one second. Oh, before, oh. before we move on, before we move on. Uh, how many times do you think they say the word babe in the second verse? Oh, you want me to do a dramatic reading of the second verse of babe? I'm going to leave you. Cause I have all the lyrics here. <laughs> you, you don't have to. I'm just, I'm just curious. I'm oh, no, no, no. I kind of want to. <laughs> you have to do it with says, a British accent. <laughs> says, babe, babe, babe. 
babe, 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 baby, baby, I don't want to leave you. I ain't joking, woman. I've got to ramble. Always rambling back then. Oh, yeah. Baby, baby, babe, I be leaving. We really got to ramble. I can hear it calling me the way it used to do. I can hear it calling me back home. Yeah, not a payoff. It's not a payoff. What the fuck are you talking about? I really, it's really not clear at all. No, it couldn't be less clear, honestly. Is there a, is there a clear definition for ramble? Is it just made up by a man in the 60s and refers to I'm, I'm leaving after we fuck to fuck other women? Yeah, I think it means I, I got to fuck other people. I got to ramble on. I got to go fuck other people. Uh, yeah. It's defined as a walk for pleasure, typically without a defined route. Yeah, uh, uh, walk from pleasure. Wait, wait, wait a second. Wait, cousin a second. of wait, sauntering. Wait, wait. It's also it's also defined as to talk or write at length in a confused or inconsequential way. Oh, yeah, there you go. Wow. There you go. I I take it all back. Very apt. Very apt lyric there. And you know what? I will I will admit I have not listened to the Joan Baez version of this song, but I'm gonna guess that she talks about rambling a little less than Jimmy Page talking about rambling. <laughs> Seems to be very on brand for him, the whole rambling. I'd like to compare the number of babes and babies in all the songs. That would be an interesting side by side to, to and, uh, see who's, and, uh, who's capitalizing the most. Because <laughs> there's a lot of womans <laughs> in there. But all right, this gets me back to one of the things that I, I honestly feel like we talked about earlier. Like, could we hang with the band? No, I couldn't. I could hang with John Paul Jones. He seems like a really interesting dude. I, I think I could totally hang with him. Robert Plant seems like a whiny bastard. And every single song of his is just about like problems with women. And maybe he's just out there slinging dick 24 seven. And that's why he's got so many women problems, but like he doesn't have any other fucking topics on this album. And even the songs that he stole are all about <laughs> problems with women. That was a contender for the band name was slinging dicks. <laughs> slinging dicks. Now let's, now let's yeah. I might steal that. All right. So let's go on to Dazed and Confused. This is an album. This is a song on the album that I liked. And um, Rob, you have mentioned before that you feel like Led Zeppelin is the quintessential high school band. You hear, heard about them from your parents or you heard about them from like, you know, your cool uncle who like, uh, you know, worked on his IROC Z in the fucking in the driveway. And uh when you hear this song, you're like, oh, holy shit, it sounds like they're talking about drugs. And therefore, that's an album. That's a song I can get behind. I remember like not being super familiar with the song and also having never seen the movie Dazed and Confused, but like repping like I was familiar with the song and repping like I had seen the movie Dazed and Confused because I thought that it would make me sound like I smoked weed and therefore it was cool, uh, which is maybe the most high school statement that you could possibly All of high school, right, right. I did not realize this song also stolen. I thought they wrote this song. No. This song was written by a man named Jake Holmes. Jake Holmes has two other works that you will be very familiar with. I would say quite possibly more people are familiar with his other works than are familiar with Dazed and Confused. Jake Holmes was a jingle writer, and he wrote the be all that you can be in the army. army he wrote wow. that. 
which was fucking everywhere in the 80s. I mean, our tax dollars were pumping that shit down our throats constantly during Reagan's 80s. The other thing that he wrote was that, like, I'm a pepper, you're a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper. Wouldn't you like to be a pepper, too? That, like, Dr. Pepper um, jingle from back in the day. Again, ubiquitous in the 80s. Right. Oddly enough, he has a pretty fucking good version of Dazed and Confused that he wrote. Agreed. I yeah, it's wow. a good, it's a cool, worthy of listening. Kind of an acoustic version, almost sounds modern mm. in a way. Like someone oh, yeah. just took an acoustic guitar to it now. But here's the, the fucked up thing is that he opened for the Yardbirds and like would play this song. Like oh, it was there was Lord. a very clear connection, oh. and it's and I read that he's been trying to get Paige to give him some percentage of credit for this entire time, and it's Paige is always like no. No attribution. My hands. No attribution. Yep. No attribution. No royalties. No fucking credit whatsoever. And like literally, like the I've been dazed and confused for so long. It's not true. Like opening line, same fucking line. It's him on an acoustic guitar doing it. It's got a weird noise breakdown in the middle. It's the same fucking song. Like honestly, we wrote some of the lyrics to be more misogynistic, but other than that, it's pretty much the same. Yeah. I was kind of shocked. It was a, it, yeah, it was a letdown, honestly, because I like the yeah. song. Um, I think the production of the song is really cool. That bass sound that they have at the beginning, mm-hmm. I don't know what yeah. they're doing to it. It almost sounds like it's a little bit out of phase or something, like a boom, boom, boom. Mm-hmm. Super cool. Again, like pretty stripped down in terms of the overall presentation of the song. Like there's lots of space, lots like, of space, yeah. and it, it's good, it moves. Um, you know, I, I think that personally for me, highlight of the song and every single time I think of the song dazed and confused, it is the drum fill coming out of the, uh, of the breakdown part where they bust back in that that drum fill is fucking awesome. And that drum fill alone makes that song for me. I remember hearing this song for the first time, again, 12 or 13 years old, um, had never heard quite anything like it, right? Very empty, starts with the bass line, but it's a slow, very drawn out bass line. And Tom, same thing, that drum fill, man. My head was like, oh my God, how does a person do that on the drums? Yeah, and like technique wise, not a very difficult drum fill, but taste wise, exactly Mm -hmm. what that needed right there. Um, yeah, fucking phenomenal. Really good. I also, I mean, you know, for me, I don't, I don't know if this has something to do with the, you know, you sort of learn everything about Led Zeppelin at once and sort of being, you know, spoon fed it, you know, drip by drip, but you know, bite by bite. But Dazed and Confused also feels like the beginning of like the black magic Led Zeppelin, right? There's something yeah. about it especially that that weird noise part it feels like oh you know uh it it, it just seems to fit the story like once you get to led zeppelin 2 led zeppelin 3 you can look back at that song and say okay all that, this is where the darkness the, came the in, like alistair know? crowley mysticism yeah 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 though i it when i listened to it in this this week leading up to this i thought oh this is black sabbath based their entire career on this song <laughs> yeah, yeah i can totally and, yeah, and yeah. did it well <laughs> agreed yeah
Yeah, so um, again, I, I think it's a really great song. It also, you know, highlights the violin bow technique that Jimmy Page was bringing out there, which I think is more showy than effective, but particularly effective on this song. And listen to live Led Zeppelin albums. I think that, you know, the whole sort of violin bow breakdown, it's, um, you know, as somebody who's gone to like a lot of fish shows, it's the equivalent of the vacuum cleaner solo where you're like, oh, about 30 seconds of this was cool. And now we're 17 minutes into it. And I'm wondering when the fuck you're going to actually play some music. So, but it used to great effect. Definitely used to great effect on this song. Yeah. Um, you know, rolling right into, um, uh, we're going to skip over Your Time Is Gonna Come, yet another song about how women are just breaking Robert Plant's heart <laughs> left and right. The guy just cannot catch a break. He's just, you know, tall, blonde with apparently a, uh, you know, a, a, a pant-stuffing yeah, yeah, cock and, uh, you know, a record contract. And, and you know, the man just can't catch a break. I feel bad for him. <laughs> but moving on to Black Mountainside, um, you know, we talked – at the beginning about how like there's a cut of this album that is just not a rock album at all. And like you take off good times, bad times, you take off dazed and confused, you take off communication breakdown. And this is just not, it's not a rock album. And a song like black mountainside with fucking tablas on the debut album of it. Yeah. It's like acoustic guitar and tablas. And like, I like the song, but I, and I'm not necessarily talking shit on their choice to put it on the album. It's, I think it's one of the better songs in the album. Personally, it's one of the songs that I could find myself like, again, not skipping immediately. Um, probably because it's very short. No, you lyrics. know, I can put, right. I can put, put up with two minutes of basically anything. Um, but it, it's still, it's odd to me how this mythos of Led Zeppelin as like this, uh, this hard rock band came to be maybe it came later and we're just viewing it from this like uh you know so far in the future perspective that they've right. always been known like that um but uh yeah there i don't see the through line on this album to like hard rock mm -hmm. and like let's recreate a genre with the exception of a couple of songs so this one is also partially stolen age oh bring I, it on all right what do we got yeah well it's like a traditional it's a but, traditional yeah. song and he really liked this guitar player called bert janch I listened to some of his records this week and he, he actually is pretty cool. Like he's a folk guitar player. It's the similar style of what Paige is playing here, but also kind of edgy in a way that, you know, I don't know, maybe Doc Watson or Leo Kotke is not mm -hmm. in his guitar playing. But anyway, yeah, I think this is like a, <clears throat> even though it's a traditional song or it's based on a traditional song, I think he also pulled very liberally from the arrangement that this other artist had already created of said traditional song, as opposed yeah, to creating his own. Yeah, which is, uh, it's an unfortunate um, uh, pattern that exists throughout most of Led Zeppelin. So are we up to three now on this album that have been borrowed or lifted? Uh, you, you should be, there's a, there, there's a few, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't quit you, babe. Um, I believe was also one of them. Um, so we got Black Mountainside, I Can't Quit You, Babe, You Shook Me. Babe, I'm going to leave you was, I believe, done with full permission okay, of Joan right. Baez, and it wasn't like, you know, we're stealing it or anything like that. Um, and uh, honestly, like, the fucking balls to just be able to be like, nope, this is mine. Yeah, I'm just going to totally <laughs> yeah. steal your arrangement of the song. And, you know, like, I don't understand how you think you can fucking I mean, get away with that. I mean, times obviously um, must apparently have been they different. did and made... Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, when it comes to those arrangements, yeah. I've heard a lot of stories like that. Uh, Bob Dylan 
stole the arrangement for House of the Rising Sun for his first record off of like his one of his good buddies. And it's just like one of those things where no one owns the arrangement, but if you're a performer out there going like, oh, I feel pretty clever because I rearranged this traditional song in this specific way. And then someone else gets a record contract and lays it down. You hear it on the on your turntable. You're like, what yeah. the fuck, man? <laughs> well, it's it's like in stand-up, like stealing a premise. Right. You can't technically own a premise, but like if you steal somebody else's premise and make a shitload of money off it, all the other comics are gonna be like what the fuck is wrong with you how are you doing especially that? if you're yeah, you getting the away with jeff that? beck story is that he didn't know about it until the record was on his turntable and page was playing it for him apparently like kind of unabashedly like oh here's the hey, record. here's your song check <laughs> and, this out and it, he's quoted as being in tears like what dude what the fuck man oh he's like I, my record just came out last year like why would you do this <laughs> <laughs> yeah well and also i would say that the thing that is pretty fucked up about led zeppelin is that you know you you referenced the bob dylan stealing the house of the rising sun uh, arrangement for his first album um bob dylan by and large stopped that once he got a lot of commercial success led zeppelin didn't really stop right. they kind of continued stealing shit throughout their career and uh sort of unabashedly continuing to steal shit throughout their career which um you know, definitely knocks them down a peg. Uh, I will say they changed music. Music wouldn't be the same without them, but uh, it's pretty fucking dicks. I, dick I do think do it that. was a different culture. I mean, the most charitable read is that back in those days, people took from a lot of traditional music, you know, the oral tradition of music that was handed down and before it was recorded, it was a little bit up for grabs, but I think there are some egregious moments in Led Zeppelin's career specifically. So Definitely. Well, let's move on to a song that um, I believe Led Zeppelin wrote entirely on their own um, and uh, had actually played on the Yardbirds and Rob's favorite song on the album, it's Communication Breakdown. <laughs> it's a listen. The, I, I've heard people say it's the, it's, you know, it's proto punk or whatever. And Bonham's playing really fast and it's, you know, spawned a genre that I don't also don't like, but I just, I just think it's a total throwaway and debases them that it's even there. I'd rather have it, another. It, it never did it for me. I, it was definitely, it was an early. Uh, it was one. It was one that that wore on me early. I'm thinking back to that like old school. Like I think it was like an Atlantic Records Led Zeppelin box set with the four discs with the crop circles, right? Oh, and yeah, yeah, this was that's yeah. right. Yeah, I, I, I definitely tired of this. It was definitely disc one. Uh, I'm gonna look that up. I'm gonna look up that box set so we can discuss it a little. Just but it, was, yeah. it, was in the, it was in the floor of the it's, back uh, of your Volvo, in a, <laughs> one of those 400 disc zippers. I remember it. Yeah, that's funny. Oh, that Volvo! <laughs> God damn. Um, no, in all honesty, communication breakdown is two minutes and 29 seconds. And like, how the fuck are you sick of a song that is two minutes and 29 seconds before it's over? That it's an achievement. I will actually give that to them. It is quite an achievement that they can write a song that is so grating that I'm sick of it by the time, you know, like I could almost hold my breath for that long. <laughs> Should be an award for that. Um, so uh two wait, more sorry, tracks wait, in the wait, album wait, right that uh, has that part oh, right sorry. before oh. the dark solo where he's like you know i'm having a nervous breakdown drives me insane and then he says something <laughs> what does he say because does he just say uh, i think he says something oh i know <laughs> I exactly it's actually... like yeah. yes it's like this <laughs> sound like i know what you're talking about phil 
I just say suck? Uh, apparently, <laughs> that is what uh, that is what the, the lyrics are officially listed at. If you look online, that's what they list the lyrics as. It says, yeah, says so- communication breakdown is always the same. Having a nervous background drive me insane. Ow, suck. <laughs> not his finest moment you know oh. frankly it hangs with most of the other lyrics on the album and if i if i was gonna pick a lyric i'd take suck over babe 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 baby succinct to the point yeah i'll take it yeah all right so last last song that we're going to talk about before we sort of give our our final opinions on this album uh at the request of adam um we're talking about i can't quit you baby yeah so you said that this album took uh 36 hours to record right yes there are plenty of breakdowns in this album where they could have taken that time and let page re-record the guitar tracks on this album (laughs) because they are super sloppy i mean just uh, bumbly fingers and the hits right The, the throughout the song there's these big hits and he's noticeably behind Bonham on these hits. I mean, by half a beat, it is just sloppy as hell. Or they could have just cut this out and put all that much more time into the other song. Let's let's take a second here. We're going to, we're going to try to listen and highlight to some of these sloppy hits that Adam is talking about where, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, which by the way, I'm sure that reviewer from Rolling Stone that we read would blame on the rhythm section, but it's clearly Jimmy Page's fault. So if you listen there, Bonham is a metronome, right? He's a human metronome with pocket. And then you've got Jimmy Page coming in and stumbling over this beautiful rhythm section. It's, it's like just, a, sorry. So that's like a my, fish on a fucking pier. <laughs> it's Flopping just. All around. There's a reason. There's a reason they couldn't cut this one, guys, because this song is clearly about the consequences of adultery and the heartbreak they needed to keep it on there for the, for the lyrical <laughs> you know, okay. all right 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 <laughs> yeah yeah the lyrical continuity of the record yeah yeah, yeah. well yeah th- this song wasn't on here how could we know that women have mistreated robert plant throughout his life <laughs> he's just had a hard time with the ladies yeah uh Eh, they wrap it up with how many more times? We don't need to fucking talk about that song. I think we've covered <laughs> the particulars of this album. How many more times is eight minutes and 29 seconds long? Does not need to be the longest track in the fucking album. Another All breakdown right? like, where he's making noise. And yeah, it's a. Uh... Yeah, yeah. Another song that they clearly just stole from a black person. Um, all right. <laughs> so let's talk about it. Do you guys think? This album belongs on the thousand and one albums that you need to hear before you die. Is this an album that you need to hear before you die? Adam, give me your opinion. Do you need this? Uh, no, I think that there are other albums that embody Led Zeppelin more so than this album. I understand it's out of the gate. It's their first, uh, it's their debut. It, it set the tone, but for me, I want to pass on it. Rob, what do you think? I'm going to say yes, even though I don't think it's even the third best Led Zeppelin album to Adam's point 
but they come out of the gate strong. Good times, bad times, dazed and confused. That's enough to push it over the line. It's got a sound. It's got a vibe. Phil? I'm also going to say yes. You guys almost talked me out of it, like, right now. Uh, but I'm also going to say yes. I, I love good times, bad times. I love Black Mountainside. And I do, like, I love Dazed and Confused. And I do like how it sort of sets up the, the sort of the mythology of the band. Uh, although I do have to admit that upon giving it a, like, a really serious listen, uh, there's way less content there than I realized <laughs> upon, you know, earlier, earlier opinions. So I, I'm going to come out and say that I, I did not particularly like this album, um, but I do think that it is an album that you have to hear before you die. And uh, you know what flipped it for me? Uh, I was originally on the no side, fucking Lily the Pink. That's what flipped it for me. It's like the landscape in which this album dropped. I remember I, I famously don't like the Rolling Stones. And it's mostly because I think that they seem like a bunch of fucking assholes, which is I'm sure accurate, but I, I remember uh, talking to a uh, talking to uh, an older friend of mine who basically said, like, you have to imagine, like, you bring home, um, uh, what's it, fucking Beggar's Banquet? You put it on and Give Me Shelter pops on. Like, imagine the, how much that was a, like, a, a different experience. These songs are all fucked out radio songs that you listen to on, you know, MMR growing up, and you, you can't stand to hear them anymore. But, like, there was a point in time where right. this was a completely mind-blowing experience for these people. And, you know, I'd like to think that there are a lot of kids out there listening to the Jeff Beck group and, you know, you know getting down on that. But uh, Led Zeppelin, they were much more commercially viable. I don't know what it was about it. Um, but, uh, yeah, they definitely... They had a ripple impact on popular music. And I think that there is a distinction to be made between, um, you know, did they have a, did they change the direction of music or did they change the direction of popular music? And I think that they changed the direction of popular music. I think that there are always people out there who were doing what they did better and had been doing what they did better beforehand, but it didn't enter into the, the zeitgeist the same way that Led Zeppelin did and it changed the direction of popular music. So I'll give it a yes, although I will also, again, state I don't particularly like this album. Oh. All right, so that is, um, that's the, the verdict. We have a three to one. Adam is the lone no vote. Um, I completely understand right. it, but it uh, sounds like you're outvoted. This one's making the list. Um, yes. All right, so we're going to figure out what are we going to do next week? What is the next album that we're going to listen to? Um, Anxiously right, I'm gonna, waiting. I'm scared. I'm excited. I'm gonna wheel are you, out my a wheel. What are you doing? Uh, I, got, I got the Albany Albanator five thousand out there, man. It's just, yeah, <laughs> it's it's a very <laughs> highly developed artificial intelligence that Piece I have. Technology. <laughs> it's on caster wheels. I keep it out in the hallway. I'm gonna reel it in now. We're gonna push the button. We're gonna spin the virtual wheel, and we're gonna find out what album we're gonna do next week. All right. Drum roll, please. Wait, I'm confused. You're rolling in a device that has a virtual wheel on it? <laughs> yes. It's on caster wheels, <laughs> and it has a spinning wheel. Get with the fucking program, Phil. All right? Okay. Just think of Deep Blue, that giant server from the, from the okay. 90s, right? Now, All right, it's that. let's spin the wheel. Next week, we are going to do... Oh, got it. LL Cool J's Mama Said Knock You Out.
Yeah. Definitely a divergence from where we are right now. Um, I've never listened to that record. I am pretty excited I, about that. Nor have I listened to it. Me neither. Does he do Dazed and Confused on this one? <laughs> uh, no, actually, he steals a bunch of music from white people for this album, which is right. Really That's right. And well, Sly and the Family Stone. Yeah. So. This is an equilibrium. Yeah. Oh, this awesome. is awesome. Very cool. cool. All right. Excited. Well, everybody tune in next week. Listen to Mama Said Knock You Out to get yourself prepped for a uh, new Sonic experience. Thank you all very much for coming to the inaugural podcast of a thousand and one album complaints. I'm Tom. I'm Adam. I'm Rob. And I'm Phil. Boosh. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>